This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, everyone. I'm Allison. I'm a bookseller with Barnes & Noble. And today I'm interviewing the fantastic Erica T. Worth, who wrote White Horse. I'm so excited to talk to you today, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm truly honored. Before we get into questions, I just have to tell you, I'm from Colorado. I grew up near Col- in Colorado Springs. So reading your book was felt so familiar to me. I loved it, but it also had an extra layer of just feeling like home. And so many of the places that you shouted out in Denver, I've been to Central City. I had a friend live there. Lakeside, I drive by it all the time. Tattered Cover, of course. Casa Bonita, Twist and Shout. I was like the most... Um, reminiscent book to read. So I really loved it. I appreciate that. It's in some ways, it's kind of an homage to that old Denver that's dying, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've lived, I've moved away from there 18 years ago. So when I go back, it's always a little bit of like, this place is gone or look at these houses that are coming up. And it's very um, interesting. So it was fun, but it was interesting also because whenever you spoke about Idaho Springs and you said the Springs, I immediately went to Colorado Springs. I was like, no, 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 picture a different place. So it was very funny to just constantly be switching. Okay. So just jumping into it, where did the idea for this novel come from? You know, it's a, it's a couple of things. I, um, when I was a kid, I was super, super geeky. I was so nerdy. And um, all I read was dragon books or ghost books or elf books also. You know, someone tried to give me a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, and I just remember thinking, where are the dragons? And when I went to do my doctorate in creative writing and literature, you know, especially at the time and even now, they kind of steamroll that out of you. They sort of train you to think that there are two things called literary and genre. And, you know, if you are a good writer and smart, you write literary. And later on, I came to understand that just meant realism and that literary was a series of conventions that had nothing to do with genre. And that I just missed nerdy things. I really desperately missed, um, especially horror, because it's it's something that's able to marry like the darker, more realistic, gritty parts of um, fiction that I love so much with kind of the the nerdy stuff, like you know, ghosts and monsters. And then the more serious thing that spurred the novel on was that my grandmother's people, some of them were um, from northern Mexico and they were Apache. And some of them were of Black descent, and they were in the Southeast, the ones who were Chickasaw and Cherokee. And, you know, if you know anything about that area in the 1800s, you know, both the white folks and the Native folks were slave owning. So I guess my particular ancestors were primarily, you know, Native, but they are also Black. um, And this is just not a place you really want to be. So both of those groups, for very different reasons, ended up meeting in the Houston, Galveston, Dallas area and working on ranches and factories and, you know, kind of forming this sort of urban Indian culture that was formed in a lot of different places like that, Chicago, Minneapolis, LA. And my grandmother had um, an arranged marriage. She was in fifth grade. That's all as far as she went. And her grandmother who raised her feared for her and did an arranged marriage with a much older man who was a mess and beat her. And she um, left him and she married my mom's dad, who's um, probably of some black and native of descent, but he was white passing. And um, she had kids. And when the kids left, I think that this sort of history, which was so difficult for her, um, eventually kind of crushed in on her. And so basically the story was, as I was growing up, um, that she committed suicide when I was 
six years old. But when a cop looked at the uh, report from my mother, he said, you know what, I, I hate to tell you this, but this looks doctored and it's possible that your father murdered your mother. And so this extreme controversy and confusion's never been resolved, really. I don't think it can be, but it kind of coalesced in my head and became, you know, what, what Whitehorse is. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. And probably so many stories like that, that are out there. So this novel jumps right into it from page one and you set the tone and go from there. And it's great. We find out immediately, immediately who Carrie and Debbie are. And early on, Debbie tells Carrie, you need a man and kids make me a real adult. And it's just something that single women hear all the time that they're not enough alone. And can you speak to that in their friendship? Yeah, part of it is is simply that because I'm a woman, um, everything that I wrote that had a romance in it was the everyone who reviewed it talked about it. My previous work, it was the hyperfixation of of their reviews, and so I thought. You know, this is not really, I've nothing, I, I'm not anti-romance or sex or any of those things, but I really don't feel like that's um, the primary focus of my work. And so I'm just going to excise it as much as I can so that the other things can come forward. But yeah, the other part of it is Carrie, the main character, her cousin, Debbie, for her, that is the center of her life, her children, her kind of messy husband, who is a mess, but also a good dude in, at turns you know, she sees Carrie's problems and she thinks, well, this will fix her. This will help her soul. And, you know, if I can just sort of, you know, push her towards someone, then, you know, I'll have someone to commiserate with and Carrie will be happy. And then I'll be happy. And Carrie is obviously messy herself, but she's like, no, I, I really, I know fundamentally that is not right for me. It's such an everlasting battle all the time <laughs> throughout time, I think. Yes. <laughs> and one side can never understand the other side. Yeah. And I've been both, I was single a long time and then, you know, now I have a partner, but people just have this gigantic pity for me. And I'm like, why, you know, I, I'm actually a, a, as, as people go a fairly reasonably content human being. So yeah. Um, once Carrie gets the bracelet and realizes it has healing abilities, her first thought goes to her dad. She carries such a burden about him and just wants him to be okay and hopes this is an easy fix. Isn't it such a human trait that we all want to fix something so important without easily doing the work? Yeah, I actually never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. I mean, it's the temptation, if you think about it, of something that's magical. I just love magical objects. You know, I love to read fantasy and I love to read sci-fi and, you know, horror. And so any kind of magically imbued thing is incredibly tempting for me on its on it, on the face of it. But you're right. I guess part of why it's so tempting is because it, it gives a promise of like no work and all payoff. And of course we learned in fiction, that's never the case. So yeah, yeah, that's, I love that interpretation. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, what drew Carrie to continue searching because she was like, if I do this, then my, it will heal my dad. And so it was such a, not a temptation, but a, but like a, that you get this for that. Yeah. Carrie's a fairly, again, like, yes, she has her problems if you think, but if you think about it, as far as she's concerned, she is a success. She's self-educated. Um, she supports herself. Um, she has a good friend, her cousin. She has two good jobs that she makes decent money. She likes her city. Um, she's a happy person. Why should she change? And so the bracelet, I think I had to have something in there where, right, she has to be absolutely forced to do it. Um, and something had to be very intense at stake. So yeah, Dave Mustaine and metal music run huge through your book. 
Um, and in one point you say, in the springs, we kept our hair long, our necks jerking to the harsh, cruel sounds of metal that satisfied the pain, the parts of us that would never completely recover. Is that your favorite music? Do you identify with that? I hated heavy metal growing up. I just despised it. Um, and I liked, um, my mom was a big blues and jazz person because her mother was, and her mother was a blues singer. And my mom was a dancer. And my dad was like, you know, kind of closest to that with like things like Pink Floyd. And I eventually liked hip hop and um, indie. But when it came down to it, heavy metal was all around me. And everyone in Idaho Springs where I went to school were not unlike um, the folks my parents had grown up with. And so in some ways, like it really did speak to me. And I think one of one of the things I realized when I came back around to it and started really listening to it and appreciating it and realizing there were so many um, bands that I had grown up with that I could I, I couldn't deny I'd actually really loved listening to but wanted to be separate from. It was that thing that you um, recognize when you when you set, for example, indie music or even hip hop, which is awesome against heavy metal, which is what's great about indie is that it's very DIY. It's very garage band. It's, you know, it's like you can do it yourself. And heavy metal, though, on the other hand, as much as it's kind of made fun of, it's you have to be a virtuoso if you're going to make it. You have mm -hmm. to be brilliant at guitar. And if you're from a working class background, you want to believe, and it probably is true, you need to have something exceptional about you to get out. And I think that's in the end what started to appeal to me. So plus Dave, Dave Mustaine is just cool. <laughs> I, always had a, I always had a little bit of a thing for him, even when I was like, oh, I really hate heavy metal, but I liked him. <laughs> I guess that makes sense because it is the nostalgia. Like you, like you were saying, you want to separate yourself from what everyone was doing to be different. And then when we grow up and become adults, we kind of have that you know, amber colored, rose colored glasses. And it's like, oh, you know, that actually was fine. Why did I have to be so snobby about it? <laughs> well, that's true. And in the nineties, you had this takeover of the hair bands and you could see why people liked indie rock better because it just, yeah. it was kind of goofy at that time. Yeah. Carrie runs into a man who says he sees a shadow with her and tells her to listen to her ancestors. Do you or anyone in your life have insight like this? Are you clairvoyant at all? You know, my auntie and my sister and my even my mom to some small degree and definitely my grandmother feel that they've seen ghosts or had visions or have some sort of relationship with the other world. And I think in the end, this is you know part of the other reason why I love paranormal fiction so much because I'm envious and I wish I I wish I could see these things. But yeah, my my grandma would be like, I saw your father in the sky surrounded by three golden bands. And, you know, my my sister would, you know, she has uh, a condition actually that kind of makes her have seizures when she's awake. And so I think she's got that kind of other world life going on in there somehow. When you're brought up that way, is it scary or is it exciting or is it normal? How does one react to that? I think my family, my nuclear family, because my father was an atheist and, you know, white dude, and an aerospace engineer, he brought us up to, and my mom just sort of half conformed um, because he he offered, and she was educated as well, to be clear, but he offered a vision of like America and American life that was promising. And so we didn't powwow and we didn't go to Native American church. And we, my dad openly was derisive about those things, but <laughs> you know, you can only keep it out for so long if it's still where you go to school and your family still believes in those things. 
And, you know, so did my, my best friend growing up, who's also native. She would go to abandoned houses and record things. And sometimes she would bring things back that got really hard for me to deny must just be like the, like a noise in the distance. So yeah, and it is compelling. Like as a fantasy geek, you, you want to believe in portals to other worlds. And I think horror kind of gives an adult portal into another world, you know? And I totally buy into all of that. And I think that that's part of what makes it even scarier because if you have any sort of belief about it, you're like, oh, I don't even want to hear it because I totally believe in it and I don't want (laughs) to bring it in. (laughs) I think about that a lot in terms of different personalities, because I wouldn't say my boyfriend per se believes in those things, but what's funny is he's a thriller writer and he's a very successful one. So he writes and, and watches and reads really visceral material. But when I'm watching like a horror film, he'll be like, hey, what are you watching? And I'll be like, a good show. And he just knows. He's like, I know. And I'm like, you can live, you know. But for me, I actually need those things to sleep. I need to read um, things that are frightening on a paranormal level in order to sleep. So Interesting. So it like calms you almost. It's the only thing that is distracting enough um, in terms of the other things going on in my head. Mm-hmm. that will allow me to put those things aside and, and be able to sleep. I totally understand that. I totally <laughs> understand that. Carrie has her bracelet. Do you have any sort of talisman or anything like that in your life? I do. I don't, I don't remember whether this, I think this might just be um, an auditory thing, but I, if you can't see, I'm holding up a bracelet. My family's inherited for a long time. And the bracelet is based off of a bracelet that I think was my grandmother's grandmother's. and. At the time, like any, a lot of native jewelry was planes inspired and it was often copper. So mine is a copper bracelet with mainly planes inspired stuff because those tribes were, you know, kind of anti-assimilatory when the Southeastern tribes, for example, were, you know, understandably kind of like assimilating because they were allowed real sovereignty at the time for doing so. Um, So this is not a critique of the tribes I descend from, but a lot of people like my family who were urban Indians really admired the Plains tribes or the ones who had escaped to Mexico, like one side of my family, because they were anti-assimilatory. So in any case, yes, I inherited this copper bracelet that I'm holding. Um, and it definitely holds a kind of like, if not real magic, like familial magic for me. So I love that. That's so cool. Carrie sees beadwork that has a water bird on it, which is a symbol for Native American church, which for what brought prayers to the creator. You just mentioned it in your last answer, but can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of different Native American nations had and have um, a lot of very, very different traditions, even if they're interwoven in certain ways or certain commonalities. Um, For example, I think most Native traditions would go under the umbrella of pagans simply because the investment is in this life and doesn't mean there isn't an idea of another life, but there's, there's like the focus is living a good life in this one and living a life that you're, that's good for your ancestors to be. But Native American church is a combination of Mexican Indian, um, Diné or Navajo, um, Lakota, and sometimes Christian traditions. And my guess is in some places, like it also incorporates maybe a few black traditions or African-American traditions. That's my guess. I don't know, but I know that my family was very traditional at a certain point. Like I said, on my Apache side, um, they were practicing very traditional medicine. And my Chickasaw great-grandmother like would go to Northern Mexico into the boxcars that they were living in, hiding from the government at the time, which did not work. She would do ceremony with them. And so they were very traditional, but then they became Catholic. My grandmother went to an Indian 
day school in Houston. Um, and then I think they were some other kind of Christian. I'm not even sure. Then they were Native American church. And a lot of my family now, my auntie, um, who is like a big Native American church and power person, now they're evangelicals. And there are a lot of natives who aren't evangelicals. And I, that's not my thing at all, but I, that is theirs. Um, but I would say that I'm Native American church and a lot of modern Native people are Native American church. And it's like, it's not a pan-Indian um, religion per se, in the sense of like, it just incorporates everything. It's very specific. And it's very specific to your family and where your family is from, but it's something that incorporates like a lot of urban Indians and a lot of Diné, even on the reservation, practice it because it incorporates so many different traditions and kind of helps, you know, you to have a contemporary landscape, I guess, um, for yourself. I love the idea of what you said is focusing on leaving the land for your ancestors to come rather than focusing on what happens to ourselves in the future that we will never know. Yeah, I don't really understand. Like a lot of my Christian friends growing up would say, well, here's the thing, Erica. And they would explain to me, you know, well, you know, if, if, if you, if you don't accept Jesus Christ in your heart, you're going to go to hell. And I'm like, is that really the deal? That sounds, that's so selfish. Like, it's not about, it's not just about me. It's about, you know, the world around me and, you know, my, my, the people who are coming after me, it's not just about like, well, I go to this place that just seems that's just like a flipping of a coin almost and then gaming the system. I didn't, I didn't like that. I don't think that makes sense to me. So at one point, Carrie and Jamie are at a bar and meet up with guys who quickly turn on them. They say some really awful, uncomfortable things. And unfortunately, it's such a relatable experience. But Carrie finds her power that night and says to herself, I promised myself that this was the last time I'd ever feel weak. Why do women always have to wait for something bad to happen before finding our power? You know, I, unfortunately, I think though, in some ways it's, it's sadly the opposite because in my opinion, in that moment, it's, she would say it's her power because she's like, well, I don't ever have to feel weak again. And that's terrifying. Right. And Jamie is the person who initially she's drawn to because Jamie seems so strong, but then she realizes like, I'm outgrowing Jamie and I'm becoming a person who in part, because of these experiences I'm having with her can not be afraid anymore. And I was a lot when I was young. So this is a way not to. It makes it so that later on in life, she can pretend to herself she has no vulnerabilities. And so that's why when things happen to her, it's so hard for her and she has to go on such a, you know, complicated journey. But going back to your whole, why does it, why does it have to be that way? You know, why do women have to find their power through bad things? I think that is a human and adult experience that's true. But unfortunately, I think so many women have to live with, they're constantly interrupted, they're constantly questioned, um, they're constantly concerned for their safety. And so you cannot, you know, they're constantly having to multitask because they're just sort of like treated as, you know, then the harder it is for you as a woman, woman of color, working class woman of color, right? The more that's the case, but even your middle class um, white lady often has to like clean up after everybody. You have to do the job, you have to do the dishes, you have to pick up the kids. You know, and so I think, unfortunately, you're not allowed the same space um, to just be free, to just walk down the street and worry about your intellectual or your creative life. You have to sit there and worry about your very safety. And so I do think, unfortunately, you know, the bad part about that is that you're not free, but the other part of it is on an, in an inner way, you're probably freer than a lot, a, a lot more free than most men because you have been forced to question your very existence you know, at, at, you know, from a very young age. That's so interesting. The idea of being freer than men, because we've been taught to um, question our existence 
that's so fascinating. I've never thought of it that way. I think some of what I think about a lot is that, you know, for um, what's super unfair um, for European or European American women, even though obviously there's an extreme distance um, there of, well, you know, 500 years sometimes, is that um, European and European American women were property. Native American women could own property. And we know that. And so that's why for me, I feel like my mother and my, and I have like, and her mother had a very flipped experience. So I love that. Well, I don't love that, but I love thinking about it that way in a different way. (laughs) Oh yeah. I see what you mean. The Shining is such a theme throughout this book and Carrie reads it to calm down, which I love. And um, she listens to the soundtrack while driving, which I also think is hilarious. And you spoke to your paranormals kind of calming you down, but are you a huge Stephen King fan? Is that an homage of sorts? Yeah, look, I'm a huge, I mean, we might get it more into this later. And so I probably shouldn't preempt myself, but I'm a huge get into contemporary. It. Here you like, do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a huge contemporary horror fan. I read Cynthia Palaio and V. Castro. And of course, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, Brady Hendricks, Stephen Graham Jones, you know, Craig Lawrence. Like, I'm a huge contemporary horror fan. But I, you know, especially as a native person, like, I can read Stephen King and see why people would be like, yeah, not the best depiction. But I have a feeling that he would be like, yeah, you're right. Not the best depiction. If I could write that again, I would. But still, they're brilliant stories and they're fun and they're compelling. I love um, the complexity of his characters. I love his ability to generate fear. That is actually a really hard thing to do on the page. It's like being funny in a poem. It's really hard. And so he is a little magic man, even if it's like dark magic. That's magical to be able to make you afraid from words on the page. And so I I love that he does that. And I was a banana Stephen King kid. So for sure, like every kid. <laughs> you just mentioned Sylvia Moreno um, Garcia and she's the blurb on your book. Oh yeah. Is yeah. that amazing? How does that feel? Oh, yeah. I have an indie background. All of my books before this were with small presses who did their uh-huh. darndest to help me. So I learned, you know, to court famous writers like ladies, okay? <laughs> like mm-hmm. Sylvia, I, and it's, and let me tell you something, you know, and it's because I owe her. I was watching Lovecraft Country and reading Mexican Gothic, and it absolutely clicked the last years into my play, into my head and place. And I realized how I could do this. And it was kind of the same thing that I had felt reading um, Sanders Cisneros and other native writers when I was younger, when I thought about, you know, writing realism. And finally it clicked into place when I read her and I immediately followed her and I was kind of writing some articles too at the time. And, you know, I really was very appreciative and kind and compassionate. And I, you know, with a person who was being bombarded all the time, if you're a woman of color, you are not just being bombarded by, 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 you know, trolls who are not of your ethnic category, but trolls who are. And she is, you know, she has, she has some great stuff happening in her career. She would, I'm sure have no complaints, but she also had to deal with a lot. And so I asked her very nicely, like, would you follow me? And Hey, I would like to write an article and Hey, I'd love for you to blurb me, but I understand you're so busy. Um, so absolutely no worries. And I like literally printed a copy off for her myself from Kinko's and sent it to her to Canada because you don't mess around with writers who have that much on their plate. And that's why she blurbed me because I was, I was, you know, uh, respectful at every turn. And that's how you approach writers. Cause you know what? We're busy and we're bitter. (laughs) 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 Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) Do you, I mean, would you like frame this cover? I mean, if, if my, if one of my favorite writers blurbed me, I would just like 
put it, you know, up on my wall or above my bed so I could see it. Yeah. No, it was absolute. Look, let me be clear. I love Stephen Graham Jones. He's like my indigenous brother from another mother and Grady Hendrix. Literally, I could almost read him like five years straight and I would finally get tired. Like I'd be like, okay, I think I've had enough reading Grady Hendrix after maybe five years. But Sylvia was my holy grail um, blurber. So yes, it did feel that way. And that's also, I guess, a shout out to anybody who thinks they can't attain something like that was your holy grail and you got it. And how amazing is that? Yep. Be just be respectful and patient and understand that, like for me, like when people have asked me to blurb, the only reason I don't is because you know what? I just, I'm probably not going to be able to sell your postmodernist, um, you know, book of poetry. And it doesn't mean postmodernist book of poetry isn't cool. It's just that my name means nothing there, you know? So, yeah. That's so interesting. Know your audience, I guess. Yeah, totally. There's a part when Carrie's at the Stanley Hotel and says, there was even a carriage up front reminding me that for most folks, this place was a cute, cozy reminder of how they thought the West was one. I love the subtle quips in this book about whose country this actually is. And I'm sure I didn't even catch them all. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I wanted to be like, it's really boring to be didactic and preachy. And like, I do, I do have a doctorate. I do write essays. I write them for the Writer's Chronicle and I write them for um, BuzzFeed because my value that I was raised with was raise everybody in your community up together. And that I do think that is a native value. And so I do, I am capable of channeling my skill set into something that's like actually supposed to be endorsing something in a, in a flat way. Right. But I don't think my fiction should be that way. I don't think fiction should just be like the whole, like the record skids to a stop. And then I preach. Right. And you can feel it when that happens. And it's, it's even if what's being said is extremely necessary or correct or important, I really don't want to do that. That said, I wanted to give Carrie and other people like Carrie who may not have a doctorate or even, you know, an undergraduate degree, and yet they're very self-educated and there needs to be some, you know, respect for their lives and respect for the fact that, you know what, it's hard work being a waitress and some people are really good at it and they deserve a living wage and they deserve to be asked about what they know. And Carrie does know a lot. Carrie knows who she is. She's just freaking mad at her mother, right? She doesn't hate being Native. She's just a little too pragmatic for most Native spirituality. She was exposed to it growing up. She's not her jam. She likes being Native. She likes, and she knows a lot about old Denver, and she knows a lot about horror fiction and horror film. And so um, what I wanted to do in that moment was show that even like sarcastic, bitter Gen X Carrie, who's self-educated, knows stuff. You know what I mean? And I wanted to get it in there in an organic way. So I think that she, it definitely came across how smart she was and she was so freaking cool. Like the whole time I was like, man, this is somebody that I would see over in a bar and be like, I, I would, I want to be friends with someone like that and would never have the confidence to befriend somebody because I wouldn't think I was cool enough or smart enough. And so I think that definitely comes across. She's awesome. Yeah. My niece felt the same way. That was like, like she's like my biggest fan. And it's so sweet. And so she's like, I just want to hang out with Carrie. I think more than she wants to hang out with me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's not true. (laughs) Um, I love how brave Carrie is. She doesn't think she is, but she is. And when she's in the hotel, for example, the carving calls and she goes, I would have been like, nope, I'm out. (laughs) I'm not going over there. But she embraces all of the visions. She embraces all of the research. She embraces all of the searching. And it also shows the curiosity that she has in her mother, which I think surprises her too. And she's just willing to do all of this work about her. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, a lot of the girls that I grew up with and went to school with in Idaho Springs were kind of ballsy. And what happened, as you know, if you're from Colorado Springs, like 
all those areas, Evergreen first, where I grew up also outside of, became kind of wealthy. And then Idaho Springs also got really kind of not posh, but you know, the, at least the downtown became kind of um, pretty. But when I was growing up, neither of those areas were that way. And um, even though you could say I'm arguably middle class, I grew up like that. My parents grew up in poverty. And because I love my dad, you know, he passed away a long time ago, but he was the messy guy. He blew a lot of our money. So even though he was, he had a four-year degree and my mom had a four-year degree and they tried to craft a middle-class existence, it was really in between. Um, he blew our money. And so we, I did grow up, you know, around and in a very working class um, area, even though I had more chances than than some, right? And so what I admired about those women was that, that they would just beat your face off, <laughs> you know? And I think maybe it's problematic. <laughs> But at the same time, you you have to like women who are like defy expectation. Um, and I think Carrie's absolutely one of those women. Um, in fact, she's modeled just a little bit off of a woman who bullied me, um, who I who always was, I think, trying to toughen me up, really. But um, yeah, I and I think that's the thing with her with her mother is that once Carrie realizes A, something's at stake, and B, she was wrong, she's a fair personality, even if she's scared to disrupt her sense of comfort in her life. She's a fair personality and she realizes that this thing matters and she wants to know what what's happened here. Well, I guess that goes back to her discovering her power too. You know, it's like that, I guess that all ties in. That's so interesting though, that this woman bullied you and carries such a wonderful, likable character to put a, to a model a bully after. That was very kind of you. Yeah. Well, because she was such a, well, because she was a person I admired too. Like I wish oh, I could I be that tough when I was like super nerdy. And I think you know, she was trying to be like, the world is going to eat you up, Erica. You need to like toughen up. And I was more like, I'm just going to eat, you know, eat lunch under the display case and read my dragon books. Thank you. So. And listen to hip hop, not metal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> Frederico is a character who meets up with Carrie to discuss her mother. And they talk about missing and murdered indigenous women and the AIM, the American Indian movement. This is something that has been a fight for native people forever, but isn't in the foresight of white Americans. Can you speak to that? Yeah, you know, I think missing and murdered um, indigenous statistics need to get bigger and better. The person who puts these statistics together has actually been maligned herself because she's urban Indian like Carrie. And so a lot of people say, well, these statistics don't matter unless these are women from reservations. And I'm like, what is it? If you look native and you are native and your background is native and it's led to certain circumstances which put you in a more vulnerable state specifically because you are Native American, it literally doesn't matter whether you are federally recognized, a Black native, Latinx native, um, a state recognized, a lineal descendant, um, doesn't have family on the rolls, but you know has is a family like mine, um, it, these things lead to potentially your assault, your um, death, you being going missing. And so it really matters to talk about these things in a broader way. Um, it's more than just political talking points on Twitter. It's it's my grandmother's life. I don't know whether her she suicided or whether her husband actually killed her. And because he was white passing and she was not, that is why it was excused. That's mm -hmm. why it wasn't looked into. So it really does annoy me when people don't look at these multiple factors. AIM is just a wild movement because that's the question, like for a lot of women who are involved with that movement, like Anna Mae Akwash, was she murdered? Did she suicide? Was it the FBI? Was it um, women? Was it men? What happened there? 
And, you know, it's even Leonard Peltier, there's all of this mystery around. There's just a lot to uncover and talk about it within our communities. I think that we're not, we're not talking about well together because we're so busy worrying about looking a certain way to the outside world. The books Carrie reads are thrillers. Um, and but you kind of spoke to this already about your um the authors that you like. Do you have an all-time favorite book? Or do you have what's on your TBR pile? Well, you know, she reads more. I would say she probably reads thrillers too, but I think she's more of a horror writer. But of course, like horror was horror in the 80s and 90s, and then it was thrillers, and now it's horror again. So um, and my book has like a little crime center. So a lot of people are selling it as a thriller, and I find that really fascinating. Um, because to me, it's probably more quote unquote literary, right? So I don't know. In any case, yes, I, you know, I've already listed, but I, you know, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, V. Castro, Grady Hendrix, Stephen Graham Jones. Um, just recently I've been reading, um, I think his name is Jason Cronin, and it's a like a trilogy about like a dystopic vampire, but you know, vampire, you know, America. I want to always mention, though, I always do mention a woman named Holly Goddard-Jones. She wrote Realism, she wrote Crime, and then she wrote probably one of the best, most organic literary science fiction dystopias I've ever read in my life. It's called The Salt Line, and I have never understood why that thing didn't go further. It is brilliant. It's about a world in which climate change has created a situation where there are these bubbled communities, and if you... Um, you can sort of like, depending on your financial circumstance, you can leave the bubbled community as a tourist. And there are these tour guides, but you have to wear these suits and you have to be extremely careful when you take the suit off because what has created, what has happened in this, you know, climate changed environment is that there are these bugs that will burrow instantaneously into you. And you have to be brave enough to put a suction into onto your flesh and suction it out. It is the one of the most compelling books I've ever read. And so if you really want to just read a book, start to finish, if you like literary crime, if you love sci-fi, you want to read The Salt Line. And it definitely has a horror edge too, because it's um, a dystopia. So I love that. I just wrote that down as you were talking about so it. So good. She's so good. I got to work with her at Sewanee actually. And you could tell she just thinks it's weird that I'm her fan. <laughs> yeah she's like who is this person You're like it's oh, like no. that's that's nice erica thank you You're <laughs> what's your writing process do you have are you one who plots it out are you one who just flies by the seat of your pants well i think that you know because i was in the the literary world for so long they don't like you disabusing the world of the magic of just being able to like just have it pour out of you because you're a genius and i just think that's really a violent way to teach people about writing and I won't do it anymore. And what really helped me because I struggle with story and structure and I do value story and structure um, was to read more nuts and bolts books. And so I read Save the Cat, you know, and I read um, Thrill Me by Benjamin Percy and I read um, Damn Fine Story by Chuck Wendig and I read Jane Cleland's um, Mastering Suspense Structure and Plot. And I have a very disorganized head. And so they really helped me um, you know, just get these basics of structure down so that I could see the way I would do structure and story. Because reading, like I do, of course, you know, I'm a literary writer, so I believe in complex characterization and depth of theme and attention to form and language. And I'll say that a thousand times, but I don't understand why people who write realism and or postmodernism and or literary will say, oh, structure doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Story doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's how you, it's the bones of your story and it's how you create a situation where your audience might pause sometimes to, to think about what you're saying, but hopefully have this propulsive read that they just can't put down. 
I, I don't see why that's not a valuable thing. So my process has absolutely become dream about these characters. And I read a ton and I used to be a poet, right? So I have a real investment in language and how things sound, what they mean. But I absolutely blueprint it beforehand. I absolutely blueprint it beforehand. And then it changes and that's okay too. Yeah. Were there any surprises in writing this book that turned out differently than what you thought? A billion. It was a short mm-hmm. story collection based mm-hmm. off. So the White Horse is a bar in Denver. It's an Indian bar that's that's finally sadly closed. I had a cl- short story collection years ago, many years ago when I was young and naive. And well, maybe not naive, but young. But um, I uh, then it became eventually... I long for sure I tried to turn it into a novel and it was just mainly a garbage heap of words. And then I think what was happening to me was I started to learn more about structure, like I said. And I also really realized that I missed these geeky things like paranormal activity and um and demons and monsters and ghosts. And so I I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it until it became what it is. So until it became a horror novel that was more structured. And do you would love it? You know, it's weird to talk about your own book like I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, I I do love writing horror and I love and I've kept all the things I think matter um in literary fiction, but I really do love writing horror. I just I I I absolutely have more fun writing than I've ever had. So I have to tell you I do love this book and I love the characters and it is a book that um I read it a few weeks ago and it still is just something that I keep thinking about. So I think you did I love it. I will tell you that whether you do or not I love it. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I think it's a good book because like, I think horror readers can appreciate it because it has these sort of supernatural themes. And I think your, your book club guy, book club gal um, person um, would appreciate it because it has, you know, characters that I hope you can understand and attach to and sympathize with, you know? Yeah, I think it does. I think there's so many relatable points, no matter where you are in your life or where you are in the country or anything like that. I think it's really great. I was waiting to speak to you today, and then I have a bunch of people I'm going to pass this off to that I've been telling them about. So I just wanted to have it in my hands for today. But starting tomorrow, it will be passed on. Is there anything else you'd like us to know about this book? Anything else I didn't touch on that you want us to, that you feel passionately about? People, again, I hope that people who like horror see something that they love. And I hope people who like book club fiction see, you know, that they're they're learning something um, without imagining that Native Americans, that's all that we're for. That's all that our fiction is for, right? We can write, we're artists, and we can tell a good story. And um, and in general, I think that I hope also that people Google my name and they Google BuzzFeed and they Google article and they Google speculative because what's happening right now in Native American literature is tremendously exciting. I've been waiting for it for 20 years. I've been trying really hard for 20 years. And, you know, Brandon Hobson and Kelly Jo Ford are reading or writing realism and they're beautiful writers. Um, there's my partner, David Heskawombly Wyden. He's a he's a thriller writer, a crime writer. He's amazing. Um, so there are just tons of Native American writers coming up all at once to the point where it's um, you know, it doesn't just have to be one person. And there's happen stuff happening in nonfiction too, just huge stuff. I just don't happen to to know about it. So I hope people um realize that they don't have to have us as a check mark, that they can read our work and it's fun and it's propulsive, and they can, you know, yes, learn stuff, but also have a good time. And that, you know what, there are tons of Native American authors out there to read. So, yeah. Well, like I said, I loved the book. Everybody should go read it. It does have something for everybody. Um, Thank you so, so, so much for talking with me today. I really was excited about this and I really enjoyed chatting with you. So thank you. Thank you. Like I said, it was such an honor.
Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of wonderful books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of White Horse. I'm Mark, I'm at my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati. And I'm Madison at my Barnes & Noble in Indianapolis. We've got a couple of great books to talk about today. Madison, you want to jump right in? I would love to. So when I was thinking about a book to recommend for White Horse, I was really intrigued by sticking with this creepy theme. So I wanted a book that would pair well, which is why I chose Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Lesterica. This book is creepy and disturbing, to put it simply. Every person that has come into our store and has either talked about this book or asked one of us about this book um, has come back with the report that it was shockingly disturbing. I think it's definitely one of those books, kind of like when you read The Jungle and then you question being a vegetarian for like a good month, this is another one of those books. And I will tell you why. And it is because it centers around the main character, Marco. He works at a local meat processing plant, but the meat they process is of the human variety. So he processes as a human, he is processing more humans. Uh, he doesn't like to think about what he does for a living, that is for sure. Um, but the reason why humans are now eating humans is because an infectious virus made animal meat poisonous. So they can no longer eat animals. So they had to like rethink, reevaluate their diets and they chose humans. They're just going to humans eating humans. And so what happens and what this book makes you think about is what would happen if you were put in a society where eating humans is the new norm, but then you start treating humans as humans because in the society, they don't call the people that they eat humans anymore. They dehumanize them would be a way to say that. So it is definitely disturbing and creepy, but I think kind of in the best way, if you want to be creeped out, if you're looking for a book that's like that, and that is Tinder is the Flesh by Augustina Busterica. Nice pick. That book is messed up and incredibly popular. Thank you, Book Talk, for that. I chose one that is also disturbing, maybe slightly more in the entertaining kind of vein. And that is My Heart is a Chainsaw by the wonderful Stephen Graham Jones. Uh, this book just recently won the Shirley Jackson Award for Best Horror Novel of the Year uh, and deserves it. Um, Stephen Graham Jones is a wonderful writer. I love that he infuses his horror with a lot of social commentary, particularly modern-day Native American life. Uh, this book centers on a character named Jade, who is living in Prufrock, Idaho, this tiny little sleepy town on a lake that is slowly but very surely being overtaken by a group of very rich individuals. So think if Zuckerberg and Bezos come to this tiny sleepy town and think, oh, how cute, let's take over. Uh, so they're building these grand mansions across the lake from this kind of decaying town. The locals are potentially restless. Maybe some spirits are potentially restless. Jade is definitely restless. She's over it. She is an almost high school graduate who likes to wear a lot of hoodies and scowl at everything. Um, but most importantly, she loves slasher movies. And she is just waiting for some kind of event to occur in this tiny town 
She feels like all the pieces are in play for a perfect slasher scenario. And lo and behold, the bodies start to pile up. And Jade says, finally, let's go ahead and I can usher everybody into the way and how to deal with this. And I will pinpoint and find that final girl who is the, that's the horror trope of the chaste, sweet girl who ends up the heroine of the film at the end and one of the last survivors. Jade thinks she's found her candidate and she is just primed and ready to live this out in the best possible way. Might not go as you expect, though. Uh, And twists and turns and craziness abound. Please, please check out this fun, fun novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. Well, that is all we have for Spooky Times. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to Poured Over. Please make sure to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Uh, pretty simple. This is Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN River Crossing. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.